0: Okay, hello, this is uh, Annabelle Crabb and Lee Sales and uh, we're back together to do a uh, little chat um, and the exciting infrastructure development this week is that I am holding the microphone because one of the things that happened last week was that Salesy was holding the microphone and as a result I thought that she was interviewing me and I spoke a bit more but curiously now I'm holding the microphone and I'm still talking more so what does that mean? <laughs> it just means I don't shut up. Do you have anything to say?
1: I'm actually finding it extremely difficult to not wrench the microphone out of your hand. It is really, I'm really actually already struggling with this um, scenario. But thank you very much, everyone, last week for listening. Uh, we really appreciated all the great feedback that we got. Um, inspired by Annabelle's discussion of her boyfriend, Yotamotalengi, I have made a cake from his cookbook, Jerusalem. It's an orange coconut and semolina cake, which we are about to eat. Um, I should also share with you that uh, after the podcast went to air last week, I got a text from uh, a certain person that said, if you're looking for a lead singer, please give me a call. M.O. Craig Emerson.
0: And somehow we have now wiped out any musical content (laughs) from the podcast. (laughs) Not a direct uh, reflection, of course, on Emma. Well, actually, yes, it is a
1: direct reflection on him. I think it's safe to say that it is. Thanks, but no thanks, Emma. We'll call you. Um, Now, also, along with my Yotamotolenghi cake, um, there is another little uh, contraption, a concoction that Annabelle has produced. What is this? Uh, yeah, well, I—that's uh, that, the other infrastructure
0: change from last week. This time, there's cake, and there's just so much of it, and there's your semolina sort of drizzle cake thing, which is um, uh, a recipe by my uh, from my dear friend and now increasingly close uh, companion Yotam Ottolenghi. Clang. Um, well, I have brought for you, Salesy, uh, one. Slightly stale but still delicious uh, coconut sandwich. Uh, sandwich with, with um, a sort of coconut meringue with um, dolce de leche, sort of caramel, and mascarpone in the middle. There should be bananas, but I've run out of bananas. Um,
1: I'll, I'll just imagine the bananas, it's fine.
0: <laughs> imagine the bananas, the Lee Sales life story. Um, do you often, I actually constantly hear weird sentences and think that would make a great memoir title do you ever think that? No
1: I think that um, unfortunately Clive James stole the best memoir title already which is Unreliable Memoirs which is just such a stellar title that I feel like right well there's the whole memoir genre done right there. Now I'm just going to have a bite of this so I can tell people what it's like so get that mic in nice and close. <laughs> Thank you very much so people Sorry, can hear, yeah. me, hear me chomping Hang on Yeah there's no
0: crunch because it's stale
1: Mmm Oh, it would be delicious with banana. <laughs> oh,
0: shut up. Thank you very much. <laughs> but very titles, see, um, I recently wrote a book and the first thing that I thought of was the title, The Wife Drought, and I remained, even though I, you know, at times thought the book, you know, was no good and stuff like that, I always thought the title was really good. <laughs> and then um, I remember once reading a um, book about, uh, an article about how sometimes um, a great title is not a guarantor of, a, of an excellent book. I think it was a Martin Amis article, actually, um, And um, but there are some fantastic ones like, you know, The Crying of Lot 49, um, uh, Catch 22 is a great title, right?
1: Mm, absolutely. Um, now, we skimmed over something <laughs> quite, which was quite sort of enormous that we just sort of went straight past, which was when I just ate that dessert um, that you've made Well, can you just give us a bit of context as to what that was for and that you've actually made it for somebody?
0: Oh, yes, good work. Um, I made it for Clive Palmer, whose house I went to um, on Monday, and um, it was very surprising. I was actually surprised that he turned up because he's quite an inveterate no-show artist. So I went and hung out with some dinosaurs and then um, took these banana sandwiches to him, and he... um, he was there, and he very nearly set me on fire um, during the cooking sequence. So, so visually, the episode is all there, <laughs> kitchen cabinet. He, um, I think, maybe doesn't cook all the time, and and may not have um, anticipated the effect that cooking spray has when you spray it onto a naked flame.
1: Oh my God! So it fully flared, did it? And
0: oh yeah, proper kitchen fire. Yep. Oh. <laughs> And it was so genuinely frightening that I actually screamed and thought, you know, I'm going to die. But um, he's a funny old um, interview subject, isn't he? Like, um, I I found him difficult not because he was not prepared to talk. He was prepared to talk endlessly. But he is kind of evasive in a whole new way. You know how sometimes people, politicians are always, you know, the evasive ones, and all of them are evasive from time to time, right? Um, But they usually use the sort of, brick wall um, uh, technique but Palmer uses this sort of wall of sound technique where he just kind of goes skating off and you just think and if you are you know a tiny bit kind of is it me being stupid here or is this just making (laughs) sense I mean it does make sense sometimes but it's a great evasive technique what's your experience?
1: yeah, that that is a very hard one to know what to do. The, the people that just keep sort of going on and changing directions and so you, you, it's like you're holding a fly swat and they're a fly and just as you swat where the fly was, the fly's flown away into another spot. Um, those sort, sorts of people are very, very difficult to interview. And also people that have got a view that they really, really firmly hold that is, frankly... A little crazy, <laughs> like so. For example, um, I interviewed Peter Carey the other week, who believes that the CIA is behind the overthrow of the Whitlam government, and he went into that in the interview.
0: What is with the timing of that book, by the way? Because you know, on the day that Goff died, he was in. The, was it, Peter Carey was at the ABC all day, you know, promoting his new book about Whitlam conspiracy theories. And I'm just thinking. Peter Carey, where were you in the early hours of this morning when this great man was extinguished? Because really, does he have an alibi? It was very, very convenient for that guy.
1: There's a conspiracy th- theory for your sales. Absolutely. The untold story, Peter Carey, CIA operative. Um, the But then when that gets landed in the middle of an interview where you've only got six or seven minutes, as I do for 7.30 report, um, well... Where do you even start if that's what someone's position is? I don't even know how you begin to start with that right
0: because that, that person then lays that down um, not as a not as a contestable kind of it's a presumption on which the interview will now be based so like but are you obliged as an interviewer if you want to extract something more interesting and not spend the whole time you know? Ensnared in this neck-deep, tangly dispute about, you know, what the CIA was doing in 1975. Like, do you, can you just say, "Oh, well, let's just move on. We all have to agree to disagree." Like, what do you
1: do? I, I basically acted like he didn't even say it. I was just like, "Right." <laughs> That's so the coward's weird. way out. Yeah, I was just like, "Right." So uh, about to Oscar and Lucinda then. <laughs> So it was just because otherwise, like, okay, I, d- I don't want to do an interview about conspiracy theories surrounding 1975. I want to do an interview about you as an Australian writer um, and about writing as an art or whatever. So, yeah, I just sort of moving right along. Let's just pretend that that didn't land there. Um, So are those, inter- those type of interviewees or when someone drops out a clanger like that that you just don't want to go down the path of, that can be quite difficult because it's a bit like, you know, hi, I just put on a big red clown nose. What are you going to do about it? I'm just laughing and pretend that you didn't.
0: (laughs) If you ever interview me, I've just this minute resolved that I'm just going to have a clown nose with me and I'm just at some point just going to pop it on and not say anything. (laughs) That is so awesome. Nobody mentioned that idea to Clive Palmer because he will seriously do it. Um, But then the problem is then, I reckon, Lee, that (laughs) and having once filled in your job for two weeks, I'm a massive authority on everything that you do, Um, of course, um... I, you know, the problem is then as an interviewer, you then get thousands of emails from people saying, why didn't you pick him up on the X, Y, Z? And, of course, anyone who watches an interview, depending on their own views, will have their own personal outbreak of rage at something that you've, you know, egregiously failed to correct. How do you um, you actually deal with that? Like, do you just have to sort of think, well, I'm the interviewee here, you know, move along?
1: Well, it's quite... I mean, a little bit, yeah, because you have to exercise the judgment. And, like, of course, if I was interviewing Peter Kerry for an hour, I would have then said, well, hang on, you know, the CIA couldn't even assassinate people that they actually wanted to get rid of. So, like, Cuba, anybody? Um, so do you really reckon that they were behind a coup and that no one's ever spoken or, you know, that it's never come out? Like, I mean, come on. But I, I just didn't want to do that. So, you know, it's funny with because everyone, as you say, has an opinion on what you do. It's incredible, actually, having now spent, several years on Twitter, how thick a skin I reckon I have actually developed. Um, And sometimes I'll look at what people say and I'll just be entertained by the hilarious things people say. So I don't know if you get this. I I certainly get a lot of plays on my name that people, I presume, think (gasps) that they're clever enough that they're the first person to have said it. So things like oh, you know, sales is sold out, or the other one is, oh, leave fails. <laughs> I can only presume, hashtag. No, hashtag leave fails. I can only presume that you get a lot of, oh, Annabelle crap.
0: <laughs> I'm almost universally known as Annabelle crap in certain sections of Twitter. <laughs> what a, I love that. Yeah, the the kind of the terrible slap down. You just think, God, is that the best you've got, you know? Oh, I had the greatest um, heckle response once from a comedian and I just cannot remember, it might have been like someone like Brendan Burns or um, uh, something like that. Anyway, and um, they were being heckled at an Adelaide fringe event, you know, comedy thing that I was at. And this guy was just, you know, pissed and low-level heckling the whole time. And this comedian said, listen buddy, I don't come to your work and tell you how to flip burgers, so why don't you get out of my workplace? (laughs) And it was just sort of it was kind of brilliant. I'm sure I'd rehearsed it, you know, and was thrilled to use it.
1: I think that you and I need to do like a two-woman cabaret act where we read the responses we would actually like to give on Twitter but that we're barred from giving because we are responsible people who work for the ABC. Because I know I certainly have a lot, particularly ones that feature, well, your mama, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> <Your> mama. <laughs> See, I've now
0: thought of another name for your biography. <laughs> sales they are your mama years.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, you get some absolute doozies though that you occasionally email me that are so funny.
0: We do have a bit of an exchange, and I, I got one last week which was just so awesome. I mean, I have had many awesome ones, but this one I, I cut and pasted because it's so funny. So I got one from a guy called James John McCallum at McCallum James, who said, um, I think after an episode of Kitchen Cabinet went to where, love your work but can't take you seriously when you show up dressed for a cocktail party. Punky Brewster was not a journalist. <laughs> but the greatest thing is that this guy in his profile picture is wearing this sort of, I think it's like a, a trucker hat or a kind of a construction helmet. The photo quality is not great, but he looks like a real prong. Like he, he, <laughs> he looks like a sort of... I tried to get into Devo but didn't make it. Um, and then he's got crazy sunglasses and, of course, you know, fascinating facial hair. I just think it's so funny sometimes when you get uh, feedback from, you know, mildly unaware people. It's just, it's just, you know, butt-shakingly funny.
1: And the Punky Brewster reference, I reckon, elevates that from just a garden variety, you know, like schlubby sort of tweet into actually a bit of comedy. <laughs>
0: The worst one I had though, and this is actually, was really just unbelievably awful, like um, after the um, kitchen cabinet with um, uh, Andrew Robb and Mary Joe Fisher went to air, I got this one just from, this guy who said like, you know, you're making fun of liberal politicians and their mental illness, you're disgusting, you're a disgrace, I hope your baby gets sick. I'm like, wow, dude, that's like, I have to take issue with that on a couple of levels, you know, like well it's just it's funny, isn't it? that people you just think there is someone at a keyboard who typed that he's obviously having a really crap day, but wow,
1: I'd like to help you out by responding, but I just shoved so much <laughs> cake in my mouth that I could see Annabelle like I've got to pad this anecdote because salsie's like about to explode with a mouthful of cake.
0: What was that thing that? Oh there was one report that you did on seven thirty once and it, oh it's about Mark Colvin um and his kidney transplant incredible story I mean like. I must go back and rewatch that again. It was just—it's such an amazing story. But like the thing that I liked most about the story, because you did the interviews and everything, and you were interviewing the both of them at a cafe or something, and whoever cut the interview, obviously extremely meanly, <laughs> used all of these kind of—you know—when they're answering, you are just shoving your mouth full of whatever cake is on the table. It was just like you know. I once saw this great episode of. Um, ricky lake or like one of those shows and they had this kid with um prada Willie syndrome and in fact the whole show was about kids with prada willy syndrome it's that um syndrome where the kids can't stop eating and like they just like you have to paddle off the fridge and you know it's it's terrible but they um had this kid and they were you know, it's sort of dreadful. They had had a table full of food and they said this is what he'd eat on a daily basis. And then um, they were talking to his parents. And then in the background while they were talking to his parents, the kid just like went, like kind of crab walked across to the table and started eating the food. And it was really awkward to watch, but I was kind of reminded of that when you were doing <laughs> And also I take issue with the fact that you have eaten all your cake and uh, you've just ignored one. Oh, no. No. You've eaten it.
1: Did you notice how just then I actually reached out to take the microphone from you? I, I am finding it really, really difficult to not be the person in the driver's seat here. Um, now, just still on Twitter, because I don't want to give the impression that everything about Twitter is horrible, because you do get some absolutely lovely stuff. I had this thing recently where somebody sent me a tweet from Brisbane and said, excuse me, said, is this your book? And it was a photograph of the... Um, cover page of, at uh, the title page of a Nancy Drew book, The Sky Phantom. And in green pen, it was written in the florid handwriting that only a 10-year-old or an 11-year-old can have, Lee Sales with the I dotted with a circle. And I kid you not, it was my Nancy Drew that she had found in a second-hand bookshop in Brisbane and then posted it to me. Like I said she could keep it because it was for her daughter and then it arrived at work with a lovely little card. It was the nicest. I thought it was just absolutely fantastic. It just completely made my day to look at it and go, oh, my God, 30 years after I read that book, it was floating around in a bookstore in Brisbane and someone took the time to let me know about it.
0: That is so cool. What were you doing getting rid of your Nancy Drew books? What's wrong with you? Are you a book
1: kind of rationaliser? Yes, because I have to be because I read so many. In fact, now I get annoyed if I can't find things just for the – uh, Kindle. I'm a complete convert to the electronic reading. Oh, you're
0: so merciless, but you're quite tidy. No, I am um, a filthy book hanger honorer and like, look around us. Like, I'm in my we're in my living room, and there's just the like, actual we run out of bookshelves, and like, there's three other rooms that are full of bookshelves as well. So, like, you know, it's just it's a disgrace. But you know, one of the things um, that I just fear more than anything else is being halfway through writing something and thinking, oh, it's just like that thing in that thing, that book, and not being able to find it. And I know that, you know, with Google Books and online, you know, you've never really lost anything, but I just, I really want to have it there. And my books are kind of organised in a really weird way. They um, used to, um, they're, they're kind of arranged in the order in which I acquired them. So like I've got whole Cases that I like books that I bought at university, and so that's how I know where they are because I remember when I got them. But then recently, my brother-in-law, who's incredibly um, helpful and kind, um, as a favour to me, um, when he was house sitting, um, tidied up the books and like arranged them in in order of height. And so, which is great because they look much tidier now than they did. But it's just it's like actually. Just it's like having lost my memory or something. It's like having an acquired
1: brain injury. I just don't know where things are. So not even alphabetical. <laughs> so you can't even go. Hey, I need Martin Amis. You've got to remember. Is that like a twenty centimeter book or is it like a thirty centimeter book? You know,
0: you're laughing, but that is exactly how I now search for books. And sometimes, anyway, no, I've I've actually then I've done a bit of rearranging too, and I've gone into sort of. Subject areas. So now I've got kind of British politics and American politics and um, Australian yeah. politics, and then American novels and British novels. So I'm approaching a kind of a, a sensible order. But um, you know, I've got a great Twitter story. Are we finished with that thing, or um, uh,
1: yes? Just I'm just looking at a stack of books. So when you tell your Twitter story, I'm going to talk about a particular stack of books that's in this room. But carry on. I about that. No, no, you talk about. It. No, no, no. it. No, now oh, well, no, 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 we're
0: no. being polite, but hey, I've got the damn mic, ladies. No. So you <laughs> Do you know what? You need actually one of those, like, earth squeegee ball things, like just, you know, or some gum or something. <laughs> there must be a patch for that. Anyway, so my quick Twitter story is that um, uh, in my book, which I've now mentioned twice, but that's, you know, <laughs> appalling. You should also buy, you know, all of salesy's books. Um, but uh, I... Um, in one part of the book, have something that I put in and then took out and then I put in that I took out and then I left it in, which is um, a stupid weird thing that I did when I was um, had a little baby and I was managing sort of um, filming Kitchen Cabinet at the same time and the baby didn't take a bottle. And for a while, she would take food off a spoon. So for a while, I jellied my own breast milk, <laughs> which tends to be the kind of go-to thing that people actually
1: retain from the book. <laughs> but anyway... Um, That uh, was mascarpone on that thing I just had, wasn't it?
0: (laughs) Maybe it was.
1: Maybe it wasn't.
0: (laughs) You know how perilous it is to poke around in my fridge. Um, So anyway, um, during the week I got this fantastic Twitter message from this guy and his Twitter handle was something like, you know, manly man or something like that, you know. And he said, listen – my wife is going back to work next week and our baby doesn't take a bottle we're really freaking out about it and it is a, such a stressful thing like if you haven't worked out how you know to manage that part of it it's really hard and it makes you just cry a lot anyway he said what about this uh jellying deal like we've given it a shot it didn't work and so <laughs> for the next couple of days I had this great exchange with this guy about well are you using a leaf or powder you know Titanium, you know, gold, what are you doing? And so we worked out. I gave him a few tips and you know, about how to do it. And then it all was silent for about two days. And then he came back to me and he said, You know, my wife says that um that is an act of parenting genius. And I said, Oh my god, did it work? And he said, Baby still hates the bottle, loves the jelly.
1: <laughs> Just ten points to the dad for the proactivity there. Top job, dad. That is one of the things I really
0: liked about it and actually one of the things I have enjoyed about the book is that lots of blokes have read it and, um, and he was just like, he was really doing some can-do skills there because like, a lot of guys, I think fathers in this situation are like a bit, oh, I can't lactate. How can I help? And it's an awful kind of feeling. But he was just like, let's just, let's just reverse engineer this damn jelly idea. You know, it's crazy but it just might work. I just loved him. He was so good.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I'm very impressed with him. Um, now, the book stack. <clears throat> Excuse me, I can see um, Ian McEwen, who we were talking about last week, Martin Amis and Salman Rushdie, which I was thinking last week after we talked about McEwen, about a really interesting... uh, That's
0: my um, British writers who love each other in a boyish way
1: stack. Are they actually organised like that? Because that's what I was about to talk about. Um, Is that that just a coincidence or is that actually a... um, Who who else is in there? Hang on, let me have a look.
0: Um, Who else is in there? I think it must be my... British kind of, it's not all fiction, is it, because Julian Barnes. Julian Barnes is in there. God, it is. Somerset Maugham, he's a bit more dead than them, obviously. So Nancy Mitford's in there too. Must be my sort of, you know, waspishly clever English writers
1: section. <laughs> for, for the um, occasion of my visit, she, it appears she's put away her Sydney Sheldons and her uh, Robert Ludlums. So I don't know. I can't see any of those.
0: They're in the shame room <laughs> with your books. <laughs>
1: Anyway, um, so McEwan and Amos and all of that crew, Julian Barnes, are all great, great mates and have these dinner parties. That was a really interesting profile of McEwen once in The New Yorker that went through it. And also Christopher Hitchens' memoir, Hitch 22, which is just a cracking read, even if you don't particularly like Christopher Hitchens, um, talks about them a lot. And they are all mad keen on word games. And to the extent that they once had a competition among themselves to see who could do the best parody of Graham Greene, and Graham Greene entered and came third. <laughs> I didn't know about that. That's hilarious. Um, they do think like they're apparently crazy for limericks. Um, and one of the the mate who's in their group is a guy called Robert Conk Conquest is a British historian and he is apparently the Limerick's genius. So he condensed The Seven Ages of Man from Shakespeare's As You Like It, which is the very famous, you know, all the world's a stage and men and women, millie players, blah, blah, blah. So he condensed that into... Seven ages, first puking and mewling, then very pissed off with your schooling, then fucks and then fights, next judging, chaps, right, then sitting in slippers, then drooling. Oh, that's so perfect. I know. How good is that? But they also, their favorite game that I really enjoyed is that they had, they were talking one time about the um, phrase, cruising for a bruising. so says cruising for a bruising. And so they had a competition to see who could come up with the best alternatives to that. So Amos had angling for a mangling, Hitchens offered aiming for a maiming, <laughs> other efforts included strolling for a rolling, thirsting for a worsting.
0: <laughs> I like thirsting for a worsting. You shot me an email during the week referring to this and then, of course, the next eight hours for me were just <laughs>
1: totally wasted. I was like, I were <laughs> like... She was, give me the mic, for God's sake, I want the mic. Um, she was, like, texting me, like, oh, I got am on the way to pick up the girls from Scouts, and I know that they're just going to be standing by the side of the road, but I've just got to say, clamouring for a hammering.
0: And <laughs> I'm like, the children will be abducted. Nevertheless, I shall be the winning entrant in this ridiculous fight. Wasting for a pasting, I had to, and dashing for a thrashing.
1: I had um, bleating for a beating, and... Plumping for a thumping and also I think you could probably get away with yammering for a hammering as well. It's actually amazing once you start playing it how many um, alternatives there are for this stuff. So anyway, um, the other thing that I read this week that I'd just like to share that I thought was extremely entertaining was a piece in the NT News about you going up there for a visit to do a speech later this week. So you know, blah, 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 Annabelle Crabb's coming to Darwin. It will be hosted on Thursday, blah, blah, blah. In an unfortunate scheduling clash, Ms Crab's speaking event is on the same evening that veteran American punk band NoFX are performing at the Ski Club as part of their Australian tour. It is expected that fans of both Ms Crab and NoFX will have a tough decision to make when planning their Thursday night.
0: (laughs) That is hilarious, isn't it? That that clash is a a big deal for the... um deputy news editor of the NT News, Dave Krantz, a a man who used to edit the student newspaper when I was at university. (laughs) I think that um, the editorial direction of that piece may have originated somewhere not a thousand miles from that good man. He's got the best job in the world because like the NT News is um, just an absolute pearler for great headlines, often because they are writing about crocs, you know, on the front page the whole time. But they do Terrific headlines and they also do a very funny Twitter account. So it's it's definitely worth following that one.
1: Does he do that?
0: I'm sure he's a contributor. Yeah, <laughs> I, think he's, I, I think everybody has a bit of a go, but um, some of the funniest stuff would definitely be Dave's. I reckon
1: you Adelaide people are so funny. And also, what's this thing with Adelaide and NoFX? Because I happened to be texting David Pemberthy, the former editor of the Sydney Daily Telegraph, who's also one of your Adelaide mafia. And I mentioned the funny thing about you and NoFX, and he replied, "Oh, yeah, I saw NoFX in Canberra one time, and they had a song about getting dumped by a militant lesbian." And I was just like, "What? How come all you Adelaide people? I'd never even heard of." It. In fact, when I was sort of p- printing out that thing to read, I was Was thinking now, is it pronounced N-O-F-X or should I say effects like effects or (laughs) that would
0: be a real like seven thirty howler, wouldn't it? Like, um, I did it when I was doing the drum for the first time. I accidentally read the U.S. as us, like us the Secretary of State. You know, like what? That's like at that point where you're not quite comfortable in television. It's just you know going to run off the road at any moment. But like I remember my um brother once. Um, uh, many, many years ago asking for an excess um, album for Christmas and being with my mother when we walked into you know, CC Records or something and she said, oh, we needed something by Inks.
1: <laughs> Gold. I must say I've always had um, sympathy for people that mispronounce words like when Julia Gillard did hyperbole um, because I think that that's the mark of someone that's done a lot of reading and not necessarily a lot of – well, they've obviously done a lot of speaking but have spent their formative years reading. I remember literally till I was about 16, I thought the word fatigue was pronounced fatigue. and it was only when someone said it to me, I went, oh, right, fatigue. Right. Oh, of course. Yeah, right. Oh, um, right. But yeah.
0: I we should start a faction, the Fatigue <laughs> faction, you know, of just largely self-educated people who just read a lot when they were kids. But that's true. You know, there is, um, oh, I'd like to say there's a body of research, but now that I think about it, was just a column I read once um, about um, self-educated people who, you know, I think it was a column in which Mark Latham was mentioned, and it was about um, people who's, um, who's you know, interest and knowledge comes from really, really broad reading when they're a kid just because they were self-motivated and sort of hung out at the library and did whatever. And, you know, these... People can be incredibly intelligent but often won't know how to pronounce, you know, a range of uh, tricksy words.
1: Uh, yes, like me. Um, now, we've been, I've been desperately trying to make us keep this podcast to 30 minutes and we're already at 28 minutes and I feel like I've barely even scraped the surface. Um, so I did want to talk about something that you sent me this week, which I thought was so fascinating, which was in, that article about Vera nap Excuse me, Mrs Vera.
0: Actually, it's Nabokov. I don't know if you... (laughs) You've got to put the emphasis on the second syllable.
1: (laughs) See, this... I also don't know because I've only read the dude, right? I've never talked to anyone about
0: it. Vladimir Nabokov. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm an APEC.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Kevin Rudd, for the pronunciation tip. Um, Anyway, Mrs Nabokov um, was... Like, it's just fascinating to me. Like, she basically subsumed her entire life to do everything for him, including, allow me to read you from a novel that somebody wrote where they referenced their relationship. Um It's a woman talking of her, or the character talking about herself. My plan was never to get married. I was going to be an art monster instead. Women almost never become art monsters because art monsters only concern themselves with art, never mundane things. Nabokov didn't even fold his own umbrella. Vera licked his stamps for him. Are you joking? The dude didn't lick his own stamps? Is that true?
0: I've no idea. I've never DNA tested any of the letters he wrote to me, so... uh... (laughs) I mean, it's such an interesting concept and that article is really, it's great because it gives you such an insight into um, into the, but this whole idea um, that one of the real keys to being successful as a writer is having the headspace to just, selfishly do nothing else and I mean great artists can be incredibly selfish I mean look at Lucian Freud who had like you know 14 children on the wrong side of the blanket and his basic premise with all of the women that he had relationships with, was with well was you know well you can't have my phone number I'll call you don't call me <laughs> and don't to me about the children and people forgive him because he's an incredible artist but a monster
1: too I know I like I just want to be an art monster like I want to be able to just us to just sit around and do this all day and go well that's a loud because we're art monsters
0: like that idea that i had about how we could go to the movies together each week and then talk about a movie and we'd be like oh, that's work that's now officially work I know,
1: but anyway it's an extraordinary article i should mention also that um, my husband who is being really awesome about this podcast and seems to be more into it than even you and I are. Hi um, Phil. <laughs> puts up links uh, to all the articles and stuff we're talking about on our website, um, which he'll hate me because I'm probably going to get the address of it wrong. I think it's www.chat10looks3.com. And the... .au. Uh, can you check it? I think it's just I dot .com. I it up, right? you, okay. you just, um, I'll keep talking. <laughs> um, and you can also, while I think of it, follow us at Twitter, on, um, on Twitter at chat10looks3 with numerical 10 and 3. Um, but also he told me that I have to say under pain of death that, the thing, if you like our podcast, what, the best thing you can do for us is go to iTunes and give it a review and say that you really liked it. Now, I don't know how that works, how you do it, what that <laughs> involves. I no idea, but I'm just saying it because I got told to say it. <laughs>
0: Man, you really nailed that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Phil's going to be really stoked. Um, I have an answer on the technical point. It is www.chat10looks3, the 10 and 3 are numerical, uh, .com. And, yeah, I mean, he has really garlanded the hell out of this website. And you can, wow, look, there's links to all the things we talked about last week. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. So if but, yeah, give us a review on iTunes, I think, is what you were yeah, saying.
1: Trying to, trying to get at it. So, yeah, so anything that we've talked about, books or articles or whatever, if, the, if it's linkable, he will have put a link on the website at some point. Now, let's do our quick, to finish off, our quick whip around of just little snippets of things you've looked at or read this week that you've liked. See how I just seized control there? If they've got, the- and I, I can't, in my
0: panic, think of anything. What have oh, I done this um, week? Uh...
1: Well, hang on, let me say while you have a ponder about that, because I've got a few things. One is just continuing with the show tunes theme, because God knows I'm not going to let a week go by without coming back to that. There was a really funny piece in Entertainment Weekly where Seth Rudetsky, who's a sort of well-known Broadway music director and and comedian and whatnot, um, chronicled every or his top ten worst Broadway mishaps of things of going wrong. It was extremely funny. Anyway, this is – I'm just going to read one of them because it was so amusing. I was playing piano for Phantom. This is Seth Seth Rodetsky. And there's a moment in Act 1 where Christine rips the mask off the Phantom in Act 1. Yes, spoiler alert, but it's been running for 25 years. Where have you been? One night I heard something clink and clank in the pit. What the H? Turns out the mask had fallen off the stage and into the pit. The Phantom's mask. (laughs) Of course I put it on. Suddenly I was playing the organ in the pit and I began to feel like the phantom. It was so cool. I was trying to get a laugh out of the viola section because they're notoriously uptight but simply got stared out. <laughs> Finally I look up and see the conductor frantically telling me to take off the mask. Huh. What was the big deal, you ask? Well, turns out the masks are not made of plastic like the ones you can buy in Broadway-themed stores. No, they're made of pliable material that moulds specifically to the Phantom's face. When I put it on, it changed the mould from the actor playing the Phantom's face and more into my, shall we say, Semitic face. As far as I know, that mask can now only be used if a rabbi takes on the role. (laughs) That's so awesome. That was great. Um, I also... um, I also... Uh, loved. There was a New York Times article about old masters at the top of the game, people who don't retire, they reign. It was really great. Have a look at that if you've not. There was an awesome profile of Bill Murray in Rolling Stone about just the craziness of being Bill Murray and how awesome he is and just this thing where he shows up in all random bizarre places and how hard it is to get Bill Murray to do anything for you because he doesn't have a mobile phone and he doesn't have an agent or a publicist. Um, and also just because I don't want people to think it's all about books all the time. Um, TV watching. Anyone who follows me on Twitter will know I'm a fan of Survivor. I'm finding this season very disappointing. I think it's the worst ever. It's barely holding my interest. I'm only persevering because I'm such a massive fan um, and because I just love Jeff Probst so much, but it's disappointing to me. The other show that's disappointing to me, have you watched Scandal? Nope. Okay, so the premise of Scandal is a woman who is a sort of fixer in Washington. She's the person, if you're found with a hooker in your bed and you're a member of Congress and the hooker's dead of a coke overdose, you call Olivia Pope and she sorts it for you. It's like the old, um, in primary colours, the duster buster. That's what she is. Um, and then Olivia Pope's also secretly having an affair with the president. Um, but, oh. God, the president, I just have to vent about this. He's such a wet blanket. There's only one thing you want in a president, and that's that he has to be manly and in control and authoritative. And this president is just the wettest, most pathetic loser. So I'm only watching now for Olivia Pope's clothes.
0: That reminds me of, I mean, I've just been, I should say, comprehensively out-interested by you because like, my own pathetic little pile of things that I've been reading is just, they're just Dust mice, basically, compared to your broad sweep, you know, Serengeti-style, you know, scope of what you've been. So, you know, screw you, sales, uh, is my first point. My second is, that just reminds me of this fantastic, like one of my favourite Maureen Dowd columns ever, and it's about... um we, we need to talk about this, you know, at length at some later date, but um, in the 2008 campaign, she was um, making the point that one of Obama's problems was that he did not have a sort of surviving democratic um, president to ask for advice, you know, and because of course, Bill Clinton sort of wasn't really talking to him and, um, you know, uh, Jimmy Carter, no use. And um, anyway, she said that Really, um, what he needs is a sit down with Jed Bartlett, because Jed Bartlett from the West Wing is really the only kind of sensible, democratic (laughs) former president. And so she apparently, I didn't know this, but she, I think, used to date Aaron Sorkin. And so she actually wrote to Sorkin and said, can you write me a scene where Barack Obama goes and consults Jed Bartlett? And he did. And she just made it into a column, which, A, is a lesson to us all. Date someone interesting, then break up with them, and, but remain friends so that they are periodically prepared to write whole columns for you. But also, the actual exchange is fascinating. It's great. It's funny, and it's a lot of a lot of the advice that Bartlett gives Obama is actually pretty good. Anyway, but it's also a bit Aaron Sorkin, as if you know this is the way politics should be, and you know, yeah, a tiny bit. But it's really funny and good. So. Um, I did. I haven't read that this week, but I intend to read it again now. Now that we've had that conversation, I've also read um, again this week, or um, for obvious reasons, Sean Parnell's um, biography of um, Clive Palmer, and I think it's really worth a read. It's a really good book and really interesting about his um, unbelievably bizarre and interesting life story.
1: And I think there's a quarterly essay coming out on Clive Palmer soon, so I'll be interested to see if it is able to dig up anything new other than what Sean Parnell's done because he has so comprehensively and thoroughly gone through Clive Palmer's life. Um, that I think that that's sort of set the standard, so I'll be curious to see if anything new is able to come out. Yeah, we'll
0: keep an eye on that one. I think (laughs) seizing control of the mic. I'm really finding that one of the downsides of microphone um, control,
1: sore arm. Yeah. It's true, it's one of the perils of the job and that's why in future weeks I will <laughs> return to microphone control because look at these puppies.
0: She's just yeah. flexed her guns.
1: <laughs> gesturing to her bicep. Anyway, so um, let me say again so that I don't get divorced, um, please go to iTunes and give us a rating and follow us on Twitter and look at our um, – website and our facebook and
0: this is why you work for the abc isn't it because you're just really shit at kind of promoting things (laughs) imagine if someone hired you to you know to spruik toothpaste or something you'd be like
1: well it's sort of uh a bit tubey and you know you'll get it it's fine yeah i am good at show tunes though so if anyone wants me for show tunes please call put it
0: away all right
1: okay that's it okay see you
0: everyone bye